Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and compelling seafood news. I'm Drew Cherry, Editor-in-Chief, and I'm joined today by editors Rachel Mutter and John Fiorillo. And today is, guess what the topic is? Coronavirus. Uh, because that seems like it is about all we write about nowadays, or at least it's getting a lot of ink from us. Um, the past two weeks in particular have been uh, seismic in terms of how coronavirus is uh, shaping up to impact the seafood industry. Today alone uh, was the worst market fall uh, in, thir- in over 30 years uh, on, on the U.S. exchanges, and we saw massive amounts of market value wiped off the farm salmon sector. It's completely uncharted new territory. It's been going on for a long time, but maybe we just need to take this in small bites, and we can start with the postponement of Boston. John, I'll throw it over to you, and uh, you can talk to us a bit about uh, that saga. Yeah, the uh, you know the show uh, Diversified Communications, which operates uh, both the Boston and Brussels show uh, they came out first a week or so ago with a postponement of the Brussels show. Uh, I guess it was a little earlier than that. Um, and now they're circulating some dates uh, later in the year uh, in a survey format to see um, attendees and exhibitors' uh, feelings about a reschedule. Now, one of the reschedules is uh, you know not too far away, so given the way Corona is escalating here in the States, um, I find that early date, it was May, I think, I find that not very likely, but we'll see. The other one was later in the year, September. So, And then they followed suit with a postponement of Brussels, which was slated for late April. So, you know, those are two gigantic shows, I guess you would say, the only other one of you know such great magnitude would be the China show, but um, yeah, I mean it's it's totally tossed the industry upside down. You know these are these are uh, planned for events, large events that um, make diversify plenty of money, but also bring um, tens of millions to the city of Boston, for example, and Brussels as well, I imagine. So yeah, it's a uh, it won't be forgotten soon, that's for sure. It's a crazy event. Yeah, I mean, so just sticking on trade shows, um, Rachel, I mean, what do you think What do you think gets lost now that Boston is postponed? Brussels, we don't know where, when exactly it's going to be. Um, John, to your point, I, uh, Diversified said, well, we could do it in May or we could do it in September. May's pretty close to hold a show of 25,000 people or whatever the figure is. It's quite high, right? Um, so, I mean, Rachel, what do you think is the impact of not hosting trade shows? I mean, how, how important do you think this um, is to be missing out on this for the industry? Yeah, I, I mean, it's a, it's a big deal. It's a big deal for, um, yeah, for, for pretty much everyone who exhibits and visits there because I think this is what they rely on to meet with clients, have those face-to-face meetings. Um, you know, I, I don't know how much gets made in terms of sales sort of directly at the event, but I think it's more about 
um, sort of concreting those relationships that they have in the industry. And also, of course, like product launches um, and putting out, you know, new policies, things like that. These are these are really important events for doing that. And the companies we've been speaking to uh, are certainly now sort of scrabbling around for other ways to, you know, replicate this um, within their supply chains. So, I mean, I, I mean, in this day and age, I think I'd argue that we could be doing more online anyway, and it's probably, you know, better for everyone's carbon footprint that we're not all getting on planes every week. Um, so, you know, I think there's an argument to be had that maybe a lesson might be learnt here uh, in terms of doing things maybe a bit differently sometimes. Um, so in that sense, you know, it's it's not all bad, but I but I do think it's going to take, you know, it, it's come without without any preparation really for people. So I think that's going to be be a big hit. Yeah, I wonder about the seasonality, you know, of of things. It's so interesting because you hear so many people complaining about the Boston and Brussels shows being so close. Um, and what ends up happening with a lot of businesses is you end up really front and loading a lot of your uh, your negotiations, your sales, your ad spend, your costs. Um, you know, it, it all comes in the first half of the year, and in fact, very very close together, right? Um, so it, it is kind of interesting, and I do wonder if it'll make Diversify, it'll give Diversified an opportunity um, to kind of take on board some feedback about that. And, you know, maybe it is a better situation to have a, a event in the fall, and you know, to have Boston or Brussels in the fall and Boston or, or the other one in the spring. I don't know. But, um, but I, see your, I, I see your point about online business. Um, I just narrowly escaped uh, North Atlantic Seafood Forum because um, the Trump administration just closed down flights from Europe to the U.S. Um, and and I have to say it it was very interesting because it um, I think people understood there was a creeping understanding that ooh I think this might be our last chance to meet in person for a while in a in a gathering of this this size and in a way I mean. I don't know, and I don't mean to, to be, you know, to wax nostalgic about it, but it did sort of feel like people understood, um, wow, it makes a huge difference to be able to meet in person, and we should take advantage of it. And I think that um, it truly, truly does. I, I, I think the industry being able to make that handshake, make that eye contact, sit down face-to-face, there is something very different about being in a room with, with people. But that said, maybe maybe the larger gatherings um, are something that will, uh, of course, they'll go on, and of course, they'll be vitally important. But it may be that there is some changes about how people perceive the way that they that they build their businesses around those two shows. Yeah, maybe so, but it's important to keep in mind, I, I think it's two or three years running that both those shows have had record exhibitor space, record attendance. So, um, you know, they you could argue that they're more popular than ever. And I, I did a fun thing on, on LinkedIn. I just uh, talked about, you know, this would have been my 25th year or something like that. And I just threw out there how many years have you been attending the Boston show? And there were dozens and dozens of replies and the numbers are astounding. You know, it's 10 years, 20 years, you know, it's 40 years old, the show. There's been people who've been to every show. So, 
you know, I, I've heard, I heard these arguments about technology, you know, making shows less relevant. I heard those arguments years and years ago, and they, didn't, they, they haven't come to fruition. But to Rachel's point, this is this is a little different, you know, this is, well, this is very different. So until we understand what restrictions we're going to have on an ongoing basis from this virus, you know, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how soon these things get back on track. Well, I think, I don't think we're going to see things getting back on track for a long time based on today. I mean, I think, you know, uh, everybody out there uh, knows um, and has the same sort of creeping fear, I think, that that all of us have, that this is going to, to create some changes that um, that may never be reversed. Um, and I'm kind of been thinking about this as well and what those things might be. Um, and, and, you know, from China to... Um, to uh, trade and carbon footprint, like you just mentioned, Rachel, to buying habits, the food service industry, to online retailing, there's there is going to be um, some shifts here that I don't think are temporary. And maybe I would have said different three weeks ago, and I might have said, "Well, okay, we're going to go through a, you know, a period of this." And today, um, maybe because it hits a little bit closer to to home, and maybe that's what it takes, right? When it for something to become clear is when you find out, all right, schools are going to be closed, so your <laughs> your kids are going to be home, you're going to be working from home. You know, suddenly the disruptions to people's lives in Germany, Denmark, France, the UK, the United States, China, um, it, it's really, really, um, it, it's hard to know what's going to happen, but I think we all, all understand that things are probably not going to ever be quite the same. Um, so Rachel, just a, a little bit of, um, a, a little bit of, um, speculation on your part on that front. I mean, what things, what things do you see there that are going to, to, to really change from coronavirus that probably won't, uh, that may not go back to, to normal if you do think there's anything? It's come at a very interesting time, this event, this coronavirus event, because the world is sort of finally waking up to the climate crisis that we're in. And I think this hitting, this this virus hitting at the same time, I think, um, yeah, I think will cause some changes, some permanent changes uh, to business and the way we, we live our lives in general. I mean, I think, I think certainly people will find out this year maybe that they don't have to fly everywhere all the time, um, which is gonna be very bad news for airlines. Now we, we can't fly, so maybe we find out that it's possible not to fly quite as much. And I think that might be a permanent change, uh, permanent change that happens. Um, yeah, and I mean, digitalization. I mean, the industry is always talking about, you know, becoming more digitalized and, you know, modernizing. The technology is there. And I think in these times, this is when you can start to take advantage of it. You know, remote, remote, um, remote programming of fish farms, stuff like this. It's already going on in Norway, but I think this is going to be increasingly done once people, you know, can't interact with biological environments and blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, it's all a bit apocalyptic, but I think it, it will pass. But I think some lessons will be learned that, that will stick with us, actually, in terms of, yeah, in just terms of doing things in a different way, in a more modern way, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. 
Well, I think a couple things, uh, and this is not my idea, but, um, you know, China has been kind of the factory of the world for a very long time, not only with seafood, but with all types of goods. And I think this is bringing into stark uh, light that maybe maybe we should be producing this stuff closer to home um, where we may arguably have more control the next time one of these events, uh, you know, unfolds. So I would expect to see a lot of rethinking among seafood companies along those lines. Um, you know, you some of the salmon farmers were very fortunate. We had a story up today because their production is spread across so many markets, whether it's the U.S. and Canada or whatever it may be. So they're, they're able to ride this out a little bit better. And that might be an interesting model to follow for other, um, other types of seafood. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, another thing, too, that I would add to that is, uh, and Rachel, you did a story on this as well, um, but I think it's even more clear, is online retailing, uh, which, uh, you know, it's been, I, as we've covered it over the years, it's been kind of this this sort of, you know, novel uh, extension for seafood sales. And even recently, a movie signed a deal with Amazon, uh, Amazon Fresh, and it was kind of, uh, you know, it was big news because it was, oh, you know, there's going to be this online retailing of, or, you know, online um, delivery of, of fresh salmon. Well, I think that based on uh, how this will change consumer habits, th- online retailing will no longer be uh, an extension. It may be very central to, to how companies operate. Because I think consumers will will definitely use it. Uh, I can speak from personal opinion that going to grocery stores, I haven't seen the empty shelves yet in the same way that John. I think I mean, you mentioned that you have. Um, there are there really are truly things like hand sanitizer that you cannot get. Um, I have seen that. Um, but I think that consumers will begin ordering things online, and I think they're going to going to wake up to the idea that, hey, you know what? This is pretty convenient. Um, so even when things do get back to normal, because I do believe that they will, I think consumers will have been exposed to a way of purchasing perishables and fresh and frozen seafood in particular that is um, that it's going to that's going to stick that, that they're going to that they're going to stay with. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because, as as you said, I was at the grocery store an hour, two hours ago, <laughs> doing a little panic shopping myself. But um, yeah, the store, the shelves are, and it's not just toilet paper like you keep reading. I mean, one shelf after another was just decimated. You know, canned food, uh, tuna, just <laughs> your canned tuna is having the best uh, month it's probably ever had. <laughs> um, fish sticks, none in the case, none. So, um, but the interesting thing that I saw in addition to that was, uh, all the stores now have, uh, you know, employees who do shopping for you. So they push these little carts around and fill bag orders and then you come pick them up. Well, usually I see one of those rolling around the store, you know, and today I bet I saw six 
And I mean, those things pack orders for probably five or six or maybe more people. So there's definitely an uptick going on right now here with uh, online shopping, so to speak. Yeah, China has been been way ahead of that. And actually, other markets, too, are sort of ahead of the U.S., I think, on that. I mean, in the U.K., when I lived there, I, I did my grocery shopping online. You know, I've been doing it online since, I don't know, like for the last 10 years, probably, wow. on, a, on a regular basis and having it delivered to the house. So I think, but what comes with that, interestingly enough, is then a different way, probably challenges actually for the industry in terms of how seafood is presented. Because in the UK, we have, we have sure, we have supermarkets who, as you say, John, they'll send someone around their actual physical store to collect the food, to deliver to someone's house or for someone to pick up. But, but as that develops, you get a situation where you actually just have warehouses full of food, right, that, hmm. that no one sees apart from those delivery people. They get the online order, they go to the warehouse, they pick up the stuff, they take it to your house. So actually then it removes some opportunities for marketing food in the same way um, packaging becomes sort of less important in terms of presentation, uh, things like this. So, yeah, so if online does grow because of this, and I think you're right, Drew, it will, um, then that also presents some interesting challenges and and opportunities, I suppose, for, for seafood too. Well, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about, you know, you lose all that in-store um, impulse marketing that um, – you know, it's so important in, in grocery exactly. stores. But yeah, exactly. that would all, uh, that would that would change significantly. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I think that, yeah, I think you might be onto something there because yeah, suddenly that tactile element of purchasing, which has been so important in seafood of being able to pick something up, look at it. I mean, this is what, if you if you both remember from from the NFI conference in January, <laughs> one of our last seafood conferences that we'll <laughs> go to in a Ever long time, at least for a while. Um, yeah, that was like a constant thing of why aren't people buying fish? You know, why what what is the problem with it? And I I mean I hate to say it, but maybe maybe um, if people don't pick up fish and look at it and have to make these choices, maybe they'll be more likely to just say, you know what? They're more likely to buy it. uh, it. Yeah. You know? (laughs) I don't know. I mean, why not? Why not? Possible. I mean, because it it is, I mean, one thing that you're saying is it it suddenly does um, harness all the power of of what the web can do to promote and explain and and add uh, context. To, to products, which I think the, the seafood industry is constantly struggling with, of how do you, how do you get all these different messages out um, about mm, you know about products? Well, hey, here's a great way, and you know the confusion over the the wet fish counter, the the fresh fish counter, and um, the portion that you're supposed to buy, all of that. You know, suddenly it's um it's kind of interesting. Um, just to shift gears a little bit um, and talk about food service. Food service, um, what do we see happening there in the coming months? Rachel, uh, your thoughts. Um, maybe you can hit on kind of Asia and the UK a bit. Yeah. I mean, no one, <laughs> no one's going to be going to restaurants, are they, from what I can mm-hmm. tell? Um, you know, you're not supposed to be, as, as kind of governments clamp down on various countries, um, Definitely what's what's among the instructions is, you know, 
no public gatherings, no no socialising. I think the Italian government was one of one of the things they put out recently, um, which yeah, which definitely includes restaurants. Um, yeah, I mean, if I if I was in the food service industry, I think I'd be having a slight panic right now. Um, certainly in China, we've seen massive impact from the shutdowns that have happened there on the food service industry. You know, whole chains have closed down and definitely, you know, independent restaurants will be struggling big time um, and just therefore obviously not needing this, the supplies that they normally have. What it takes is like someone like McDonald's um, or Starbucks in the US, let's say, to yeah, sh- shut its doors to the public. And then I think it will be a yeah domino effect for everything else. And then what that means for the food service industry is, yeah, it's pretty shocking to think about. Yeah, I think the impact is going to be long, too, because, well, already in Seattle, you're seeing restaurants literally just close, go out of business. And this has only been a little bit. But um, and you don't know all the context. They may have been struggling anyways. But if if you're weak at all, you're probably not going to make this. But besides that, once this passes, you know, the the, the jobs that are being uh, potentially going to be lost and the lost uh, wages and all those things that are happening to the average person. It's going to be a while before they feel like they have enough disposable income to start going to restaurants again, more than likely. So, you know, even once this recovers, I think the impact on restaurants will be even longer because I think there just won't be the people going out. And one of the market research firms today um, released a, a quick study. They did like a survey. And I mean, you know, overwhelmingly, everybody said they're going to just pull in the reins, they're going to cook at home, and they're not they're not going out to eat. No surprise, but, you know, depending on how long this continues, the ramifications are huge. And I agree with Rachel. If some big chain, you know, folds, yikes, um, all yeah. those jobs. And, and I think I think the point you make about, yeah, this, this shifts habits, right, to, to eating at home. And we all know what people don't cook at home, and that's seafood they they go out to eat it in restaurants you know it's sort of famously a thing that when people eat seafood they tend to eat it out um because they think they can't cook it and because it makes the house smell or something um so yeah i mean you could argue that this is particularly devastating for the for the seafood sector thanks for the cheery note yeah sorry <laughs> we're on a downward slope here well, drew yeah. we gotta pull up man yeah. Come on. uh <laughs> let's see there's gotta be something positive going on in the world well hey, give, give, me give me a minute give me a minute all right uh, what I understand China is starting to buy lobster again, according to a report I just saw a little while ago. Some some flights are actually Ready? flying out of Nova Scotia, so which they haven't for weeks. So that's all you got. All right. That's all I got for you, man. I'm sorry. And people are buying canned tuna. Yeah, that's, that's all we have. Oh, that's yeah. right. That's about Bumblebee is going to be able to pull out of their bankruptcy sooner than they thought. Well, speaking of bankruptcies, not to bring us back down, but it, that is, it's going to happen. Um, what this may do, uh, I was just on the phone with a, a seafood executive earlier today, and we were kind of musing what, um, what this might mean. Um, and, and I think that 
it will collapse the supply chain in a very, very interesting way over the next year. There's a lot of companies that will not be able to handle this. In mm-hmm. particular, traders, people, all the people along the supply chain that, that touch seafood and take that 1%, um, they will not make this. They are going to go out of business, and they will either be acquired and, uh, and uh, become part of something, uh, you know, some vertically integrated chain, um, or they'll they'll just straight straight uh, implode, and th- and there'll be a different way to 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 move product. But that I think will be the um, one of the the long tail effects of this mm-hmm. is that this is going to radically speed up what was already happening, which is consolidation and uh, vertical integration in the seafood industry. So. Uh, whether that's a, a, a bad thing or a good thing, um, on a human scale, bad thing. Uh, on an industry long-term sustainability, long-term growth scale for, th- for seafood, it's probably a good thing. But right now, uh, it sure doesn't seem like there's anything good. Um, I, I'm going to end here be, uh, on, on a note here that was from North Atlantic and, and Gorian Nikolic from Rabobank, who, who always gives fantastic presentations. Um, it's hard to imagine that this was two weeks ago, less than two weeks ago, that that um, that I was sitting in the in the moderating the Whitefish panel, and there were several presenters, including uh, including Gorian. And as part of his final slide, he, he uh, focused on the coronavirus, and he had four scenarios. Scenario one, he called the bad which was the virus remains in Asia with no swift repeat effect, uh, like in China. Um, And China's GDP growth could drop below 5% in 2020. Scenario two, which he called the worse, uh, the virus spreads further within China and lasts longer. Uh, And and China's GDP growth could drop below 4% in 2020. And note, he was only talking about China at that stage. Scenario three, the ugly, the virus spreads beyond China and Asia and developed economies. Um, and, and here he says, a services sector would get the biggest hit, international trade would be broken. And uh, scenario four, which he called the unthinkable, the virus spreads globally and also mutates. That hasn't happened yet. But he, add, he added a global pandemic which uh, the World Health Organization has declared COVID-19, coronavirus, a global pandemic. So we're somewhere between scenario three and scenario four. So we may not be at the unthinkable yet, but we are uh, at the very least in the ugly and maybe beyond the ugly. Wish I had. <laughs> wish I could end we this might, back on that high note, folks. But we um, might be at five, and then, <laughs> as far as I could tell. But well, Disneyland yeah. just closed, and so I don't know. That yeah. that <laughs> might be. We may be at DefCon five, people. Marks, yeah. marks the end of the world to me. Yeah. Thank God we got a leadership in the White House to get us through. Yeah. Well, let's just <laughs> let's just see because every day and every tweet brings something new and something um, something different um and and now it's it's really kind of outside of uh, of a lot of our control and um and we don't know what's going to happen we don't know if it's going to be state closures country closures regional closures um there, there's literally no way to know we're just going to do our best to cover it and figure out how to um how to um 
make some sense out of this. So, John and Rachel, thanks. Uh, we'll be back next week, and uh, I'm assuming this is a topic that's, that's not going to go away for a long time to come. So, again, best we can do is uh, be on washing our hands and not touching our face and social distancing. That's my little, uh, my little plug um, for global human health. We'll just all keep saying that. Um, but beyond that, um, all we can really do is, is watch and wait. I think that is where we are, and I think that uncertainty is what's, um, what's really going to be the hardest for the, for the seafood industry. All right. Thanks, folks. We'll talk to you next week.